Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the wake of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. So please bear with us if there are any issues with sound quality. With over a million cases reported globally, the coronavirus pandemic has opened gaping holes in public health systems across the world. Alongside more conventional responses to the disease, countries are now adopting different technologies to effectively contain the pandemic. Big data in particular has emerged as a key enabler in the fight against coronavirus. Countries like Belgium, China, South Korea and Taiwan are relying on big data to track the movement of people at epicenters and to monitor vital statistics such as heart rate and blood pressure of coronavirus patients. In India too, authorities are increasingly relying on data from phone call records, CCTV footage and GPS systems to track down primary and secondary contacts of coronavirus patients. While the vast trove of data could and will assist with better understanding the virus and its transmission, the use of such data also calls into question issues relating to privacy and its potential abuse. In this episode of Interpreting India, I am joined by my colleague Anirudh Barman as we discuss how different countries are leveraging data in their fight against COVID-19 and what privacy means in a world engulfed by pandemic. Anirudh is an associate fellow with the Political Economy Program at Carnegie India, a scholar and commentator on issues relating to public institutions, the regulatory state, and state capacity. He has also recently authored a Carnegie working paper on India's personal data protection bill. Anirudh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Srinath. Thank you for having me. Anirudh, we've been reading a lot about global responses to COVID-19 using data and various ways of tracking individuals and where they have been going and whom they have been interacting with and so on and so forth. How effective has all of this really been? I know it's early days, but what is your assessment of where things stand as far as technology, in, particularly with data uh, in COVID-19 is concerned? Uh, Srinath, I think uh, it's, like you said, it's early days yet. I think uh, what we've seen is that countries in East Asia and China have actually used technology fairly extensively to do a lot of contact tracing in order to try and identify who is already infected and who is at risk of further infection, but also to enforce quarantines and to make sure people who have been quarantined do not violate the quarantine conditions. And this has had some measure of success in Singapore, in South Korea, in Taiwan, in China. And their efforts have been touted globally as something that's been fairly successful and effective so far. But I think a final uh, report card or a final result will only be possible once we've actually seen how they're able to deal with multiple waves of the epidemic coming in and infecting the local population. So there is a lot of discussion around identifying clusters of COVID. For example, South Korea seems to be something of a leader in, in terms of doing this. But 
it also seems that what is at play is not just technology in terms of surveillance and identifying these clusters, but also a fairly high levels and rigorous amounts of testing to go along with it. So what kind of a combination do you think really uh, has been working in the case of a country like South Korea? Yeah, I think what uh, some of these countries have done effectively is be is to be able to identify, like you said, clusters or hotspots of uh, viral spread or transmission and to actually try and isolate them from uh, spreading to the wider population. And they've used technology fairly intensively, some would argue very intrusively in these cases. But that's what has seemed to yield results. They've been able to make sure that people who have already uh, been identified as infected do not violate the terms of their quarantine. And they've been able to, using GPS and cell phone signals and a variety of applications, they've been able to ensure that these people uh, do not come into contact with uninfected people or uninfected populations. But the other thing they have been able to do is to identify who all uh, infected people have been able to come into contact with or have been in close vicinity to. That has in turn enabled them, enabled these governments to actually go after possible infected individuals and test them intensively and if necessary to quarantine them. So it's been a case of using technology to contain the spread of uh, COVID-19. And some of these governments have done a pretty good job so far. What do you think India's capabilities are in this domain? Because we've seen some attempts within India also to adopt similar kinds of techniques and strategies to identify and trace individuals and their networks. we are recording this episode on 6th of April and today's newspapers were talking about saying that the central government has perhaps identified a set of districts in India which are seen as potential hotspots. And going forward, perhaps a lot of effort is going to be concentrated in terms of keeping those uh, areas under closer surveillance and to contain COVID instances to those areas. Uh, where do we stand really as far as these kinds of capabilities are concerned? So, Srinath, I think what uh, I've noticed so far is that most countries have really made good use of their existing capabilities rather than trying to develop new ones. So, for example, India has different mechanisms to identify uh, diseases and to do disease surveillance. We have something called a integrated disease surveillance program that basically relies on uh, ground up reporting of diseases and pandemics to try and do large scale analysis of the spread of infections and diseases. Uh, it's quite different from what something like uh, some country like Singapore or South Korea or even China might use. So what we've seen is uh, state governments, local governments, the national government in India, they've all used their existing capabilities rather than try and develop new technologies on the go while trying to fight this pandemic. Uh, recently, we've seen something, some app called Arogya Situ, which is now being uh, which has just been introduced to basically enable individuals to trace uh, who they've come into contact with and to try and identify whether those persons were infected. But it's something that has been recently launched and even similar apps in Singapore, for example, they are not very widely used. Uh, So I think the broader narrative is that countries are really relying on their existing capabilities, the technologies they already have, 
And if something is really working in some other countries, they'll try experimenting with it. But they are not going to rely on it to actually try and combat the pandemic at this juncture. Right. And uh, in the Indian context, there have also been various other kinds of things which have been done apart from the app, as you were saying, for instance, you know, there right. was this uh, case of the Delhi government handing over cell phone numbers of a number of people to the local police, which seems to be something of a violation of their privacy, at least in the way that we right. understand things in normal circumstances. Uh, of course, these are always, you know, portrayed as things which are being done in extremists uh, and so on. But but clearly they do raise some concerns about how we're going about uh, also securing the rights of individuals even as we combat this pandemic. Yeah, there's definitely a very valid concern about whether privacy rights are being violated and how the government is sharing data, how it's partnering with private companies to actually build apps that in turn requires the government to share data or for the private company to turn over data to uh, the government. The mitigating factor, I suppose, is that this really is an exceptional situation where you do have a different threshold for assessing uh, how dangerous this is. these kinds of practices are to privacy interests because we do have two very, very serious conflicting interests. One is literally to save human lives and livelihoods. And the other is to worry about individual privacy. Uh, and because it's a difficult situation, I guess it's also a difficult situation for governments to be in. Uh, having said that, I agree. Checks and balances are very important. We do need to ensure that whatever is done is, at least there is an effort to make sure that individual autonomy and privacy is not compromised seriously. Well, for instance, um you know, a number of commentators and observers have pointed this out, but it also strikes me that the government has a lot of powers already under things like, you know, the Epidemics Act right. uh, or the other kinds of Disaster Management Act, which was invoked in this case. Uh, but right. it is striking that even the powers to frame administrative rules under these acts have actually not been used in order to put any rules in place. I mean, that that's what seems to be a little puzzling in terms of the reaction. I understand that this is not the time to be rushing to the Supreme Court or, you know, uh, trying to make a fetish out of privacy and so on. But uh, the fact that, you know, a range of these kinds of steps are being taken, even without the minimal sort of administrative framework, which you would expect, uh, isn't that a little bit of a puzzling kind of situation? Yeah, Srinath, I agree and I understand where, where this concern is coming from. And, uh, in an ideal situation, we would definitely want some kind of legal framework which would actually be able to ensure that these things happen in a more uh, rule of law way. Uh, having said that, I think even if you look at the proposed data protection bill in Parliament, the personal data protection bill, even that provides an uh, exception from a lot of requirements under the bill in order to combat uh, health emergencies. So it's not that uh, even new laws that are more privacy-oriented that we are currently envisioning or currently proposing do significantly better. Even they provide serious, if not broad, carve-outs to government power in cases of emergency. I'd like to actually come back to the uh, data protection bill in just one second. Uh, but before that, I mean, if you look at it comparatively, I mean, take the case of a country like Britain, for instance, right? I mean, before the British Parliament kind of declared itself, uh, you know, in recess because of the pandemic, they did manage to push through a 
series of laws in order to enable the government to tackle my question is not so much about saying you know i don't think we should think in this context at least of law as uh, something you know which is there against the state but as something which enables the state also to act effectively but within reasonable sort of limits of what uh, operates in even in a context like this and it's in that case that it seems to me that neither the parliament uh, is around but as you're saying you know even existing laws do give a lot of leeway but even in terms of just framing rules which the government can easily do uh, we've not seen much by way of action there yeah i i completely agree i think there should have been much more uh, much more action in terms of legislating uh, standard operating procedures protocols for how this to be, this is to be handled and uh, i think privacy and surveillance is one part of it but even in terms of how the broader lockdown has been handled i think uh, advanced preparation operating procedures for how for example essential commodities are to be allowed a lot of preparation in that is also lacking so i i completely agree i don't but i don't think it's something that's limited just to how governments are currently conducting surveillance i think it's a broader uh, lack of preparation of the indian government in in how it's handled this pandemic right and uh, you refer to the data protection bill about which of course you've written a very important paper which we will link to in the show notes uh but the data protection bill creates several categories within which data comes in could you just explain a little bit about that and where health really falls within the scheme which is envisioned by the act so broadly the data protection bill says that you cannot collect individual data personal data without individual consent and there have to be certain checks and balances that companies have to put into place in order to process your data and to uh, derive some insights from it uh, these include things like putting in security practices putting in transparency requirements uh, giving users some kind of uh, uh, some kind of right to correct or erase their data uh, and importantly it also places a requirement that data cannot be used for purposes other than which the individual consented to and if that data has been used for such purposes then and if that data is no longer necessary the company has to delete that data and a lot of this also applies to scientific research to pharmaceutical companies and so on uh having said that when the bill does provide that in cases of emergencies like this uh the requirement of consent can be waived off it does not really need to follow this whole process of giving notice to individuals and asking for their consent in order to uh, use and process their data so what we are seeing is that even if the data protection bill were to be in place today uh, i think the government would have the broad power to act in the way it is doing uh, even now Uh, i think there would be one or two procedural hurdles but i don't think it would have changed anything substantively sure i i think that point is quite well taken uh, but i suppose the concerns really are that even with the kind of powers that the government has right what kinds of explanations or justifications are being given for use of this or that kind of technology i mean 
you spoke about this new app which has been developed arogya setu which which i think right. is is now uh, looked upon by the government but you know there are at least two somewhat related but different kinds of concerns the first mm-hmm. is that there has been a private corporation which has been involved in the development of this and nothing much seems to be very much known about what exactly that role is right. secondly the app itself right i mean there is a lot of uh, lack of clarity about what exactly are the kinds of data that the app will actually be able to access uh, and it gives the app an ability to trace all the other people whom you have been in touch with uh, and potentially their data as well so it's it just seems like it's a kind of a cascading system with uh, you know no sort of attempts to even explain to public at large instead what we have is basically exhortations that we everyone should adopt this emails are being sent out uh, including by you know public organizations about uh, saying that you know everyone should get the app onto their phones and so on no i completely agree i think uh, transparency has been a big issue in uh, how some of this work has been done uh, i think the government should have been upfront about uh, how it's partnering with the uh, a private firm in actually doing some of this work and also be completely clear and transparent about what kind of data will be collected and more importantly what will uh, what it will be used for i think uh, and also the time limit there has to be some kind of a limitation in terms of uh, when the emergency actually expires <laughs> there has to be some limitation on the ability of the app to collect data once the situation is uh, actually over right but at this point of time you know we don't have any such time specification i you know in 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 terms of either what we are operating with or let alone what is laid down in the law so to speak yeah absolutely but having said that i think a lot of the things that even the government is grappling with do not have a finite uh, i mean time window so to speak it's nobody is very clear on what when this epidemic will peak in india whether there will be a second wave of the epidemic or not and what kind of preparation there should be in order to combat that epidemic i think uh, a lot of this is basically playing out the way it is uh, a because we do not have a strong rule of law culture but also b because we do not have a sense of how this pandemic is really going to play out and i think both of them are basically coming together to create the kind of situation we are in right now no i think that's a very good point uh, which is that the general levels of uncertainty even for the government and the state are uh, extraordinary and and in that context i think uh, it is true but i suppose the the concerns as you're saying is more about you know at what point will people want to actually retract the powers which they have exercised right because the one thing which we yeah. normally see is that once you have the ability to do something it does not mean that those things cease to be uh, done once the particular reason for which they came into being uh, ceases to exist so it's 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 more a concern about the lingering effects of these practices rather than about you know what is being done in the here and now so to speak yeah absolutely i think uh, there is this general concern and it's a lot of people have articulated this concern that a lot of the increase in powers that we are seeing especially with regard to disease surveillance are somehow uh, going to be permanent or at least linger on for some kind of time and even if they don't stay in the specific form that they have uh, acquired today you might end up legitimizing the use of these kinds of powers in the longer run and give rise to uh, governments articulating 
better and better reasons for these kinds of surveillance mechanisms. I'm not entirely uh, sold on the idea. I do agree there is a danger of uh, some of these practices becoming permanent. Uh, and I am worried by how intrusive some of these mechanisms are. But I think if we look at how uh, government powers have increased drastically in past emergencies, we've seen two or three uh, big characteristics. One is uh, not just mm, the government power has not been exercised in a specific area. Rather, what we've seen is government power has actually been exercised over a wider sphere of the economy or the sector as a whole. For example, during the Great Depression, we didn't see uh, only one sector of the economy being targeted. We saw basically all sectors of the economy come under government control. So what we are seeing right now is basically we are seeing more and more intrusion uh, in individual privacy, but from a very narrow use case, which is to actually ensure that uh, individual data is collected to prevent the spread of uh, the pandemic. We are actually not seeing, at least so far, we are not seeing too much other kinds of information being collected in a similarly intrusive manner. And this is broadly the, a common pattern across the major countries that have used technology very intrusively. Most of the use has been for a very specific use case. So, uh, I mean, yes, we th there's definitely a chance that this could become a much broader problem. Governments could actually use some of these techniques across a wider set of areas. But so far, what we've seen is it's mainly been limited to combating the pandemic and the solutions that are being used or deployed are actually within that narrow use case. Sure. And just to speculate a little bit about what lies ahead, I mean, do you think the experience of the pandemic itself may have some implications for what the final contours of the bill are going to be turning out to be? I mean, uh, it, it could either end up muting criticism or, you know, perhaps people might ask for more safeguards. I mean, do you think any of that is likely to feed back into the provisions of the bill itself? So there, I'm a little pessimistic. If anything, I think uh, the experience of this pandemic might uh, give uh, fresh impetus to those who want to water down privacy protections uh, and therefore legitimize government use or oversight over data. And I mean, not just government use of individual data, but also government's power to say, take over or commandeer, uh, commandeer the data belonging to private firms in times of emergencies. So we already have a provision in the bill which talks about taking over non-personal data from firms in, in order to improve the efficiency of government services. We could easily see something like that become broader, especially for, say, uh, giving governments power to deal with emergencies. Uh, and I think for that reason, it is actually a bad time to try and litigate or relitigate privacy policy right now. We, those who are interested in individual privacy should actually uh, wait till we are actually past the, at least this stage of the pandemic to reopen the provisions of the data protection bill. I think if we try and litigate it now, 
Uh, one danger I foresee is that we might unknowingly enable the government to increase its power within the bill rather than to actually constrain government power. No, that sounds very, uh, very sound uh, thinking to me because I think at this point of time, the emphasis will definitely be more on security, which is a function of the state rather yeah, than privacy yeah, uh, in, yeah. in, 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 against the backdrop of this. So I, I think a lot will definitely change, as you are saying, and perhaps the balance will end up tilting more towards enabling the state to provide security uh, rather than worrying about other things. Yeah, uh, I think, uh, sorry, you know, just to sorry, interrupt for a minute, I think a lot will also depend on how long this pandemic lasts and how well we are able to combat it right now. If, for example, uh, if we are in a situation like this for the next six, eight months, we might see governments being able to articulate uh, a reason for getting a wider scope of powers to actually intrude on personal uh, autonomy and privacy. Uh, on the other hand, if we are able to combat it effectively right now, then a lot of the justification for making that kind of claim goes away. Sure. But in general, I mean, you know, there's a lot of discussion even in the area of economic policy making, saying that, you know, th the state is going to, in some ways, emerge uh, perhaps bigger, stronger, more empowered right. from this particular crisis globally. And right. if that is the case, then, you know, some of these provisions will also come in as part of that kind of expanding state uh, in order to provide security argument. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that is going to be a bigger trend. I think some of that was already happening over the last uh, few years and we had seen the, so to speak, the comeback of the nation state. Uh, and I think what this pandemic is doing is going to accentuate some of those tendencies that we were already seeing. Uh, and yes, I think depending on how bad the economic situation is, depending on how uh, well we are able to uh, fight this pandemic, I think we might see a greater legitimation of the role of the government across the world. Right. I want to talk a little bit about another aspect of uh, the data protection bill that you've written about, uh, which is more to do with data localization mm -hmm. uh, and what it means for the ability of countries to cooperate with one another in the context of the current pandemic. Uh, do you think there will be a move towards greater data sharing across borders, or is it going to be stronger attempt towards localizing data and keeping, so to speak, national control over data, particularly since health data falls under personal or sensitive data? How do you think that aspect that the sort of wider international dimension of these flows is likely to get affected by this crisis? Uh, so I think there's a difference between what I think ought to be done and what I think might happen. I think the, the right thing to do would be to enable researchers from across the world to collaborate as well and as smoothly as possible. So you're able to devise solutions, vaccines, uh, medicines, equipment uh, for fighting this pandemic so that you can get back to a situation of normalcy as soon as possible. Having said that, what we are seeing is that this uh, pandemic is basically feeding into the impulses of a lot of political leaders who have traditionally been fairly uh, averse to open borders to free flow of data. And I think that's going to play out in the near future where at least some people are going to make a forceful articulation of keeping their data in India 
or within their domestic borders so that they are not reliant on a third country or on a second country, so to speak, to actually provide solutions to their own population. Uh, but the right thing to do, undoubtedly, is to allow scientists, medical uh, fraternity to collaborate and to come out with solutions uh, for the pandemic. And to do that, you really need to enable free flow of data. Even before this pandemic came about, a lot of people in the scientific community were complaining about how cross-border collaboration had completely broken down because of data localization requirements, local data storage requirements, uh, requirements that basically collaborators sign uh, fairly exhaustive agreements about how to manage data. And this was already being talked about as a serious issue. And if that hinders the speed and the efficacy with which we can fight COVID-19, I think that will be a disaster. There has also been a lot of talk about saying this is the moment when big data and artificial intelligence are going to turn out to be the magic wands that their proponents always hold them out to be. Do you see that actually happening at this point of time? So I'm not an expert on AI or big data. And I think if anybody can, anybody thinks that there is a way to come out with a solution, they should go for it. I think I would wish them the best of luck. But uh, if you haven't seen too many uh, use cases being convincingly articulated yet on how they would actually go about solving these some of these issues. Right. So as the government looks to the weeks and months ahead, how to deal with the current lockdown here in India and how to get the economy uh, back on its feet, even as we continue this struggle against the coronavirus, uh, what aspects of data, data protection, the legal architecture do you think the government should keep in mind once this initial wave is passed? Let's let's uh, agree that at this point of time, a lot of things have been done, which had to be done in uh, in, in a bell-mell haste. But the minute they have an opportunity to really take a step back and to plan ahead, what are the two or three things that you think they should concentrate on in this domain, even as they plan for the next few months? I think one uh, technology-related issue is to do the continuous iterative process of making sure that whatever solution they build to combat this epidemic is the least intrusive, the most uh, privacy-respecting solution they can come up with. And if uh, this needs collaboration with the private sector, I think they should do it intensively. Uh, the second is to be transparent about how they are using technology, because I think communication does help in solving some of these problems. Sometimes the lack of transparency can have uh, the opposite effect, it can actually make people wary of using solutions being uh, propounded by the government. Uh, the second is in the context of the data protection bill and its larger impact on the economy. I think I've written in my paper that the compliance costs of implementing the data protection bill are going to be fairly significant. Uh, once we come out of this pandemic, we will be in a situation where the economy will basically have been shut for quite a while. And people will be trying to restart their enterprises, their lives, trying to make sure their income streams are stable. There will be fairly significant job losses and so on. Uh, during this period, I think it's imperative for making sure that we don't burden these firms with new compliance costs. So there is a scope to try and rationalize some of the uh, 
most uh, burdensome parts of the data protection bill or to basically look at the right time and moment to actually make uh, the bill implementable. I suppose that would be particularly true of small and medium enterprises, which are anyway at, you know, at the knife edge, so to speak, at this point of time. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think some of the larger tech firms or even the tech startups, they are broadly already cognizant of the issues with the data protection bill. They've already built systems to comply with a lot of uh, these kinds of issues. Uh, Some of them also cater to consumers outside India, so they have to deal with laws present in foreign jurisdictions. But for the bulk of Indian firms who are either not tech firms or who are basically small and medium enterprises who are uh, going to try and restart, to have a completely new set of requirements is going to be especially burdensome. So we have to be very careful in how we think about implementing this bill now. I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to come back to these questions uh, in the weeks ahead as the pandemic and the crisis unfold. Anirudh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Srinath. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our website.